Our scripture reading today comes from John 9, 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Everybody doing okay today? Thank you for uh, joining us at our Leeward campus today. I'm Tom, and uh, so glad you are here. Well, at age 19 months, Helen Keller, this amazing woman, as a child, lost her sight and her hearing. Her courageous life uh, in the 20th century, she was an author, she was an early disability rights advocate, amazing lady, is incredibly inspiring. She's remembered for many things, y'all, but... Perhaps what stands out to me most was her remarkable insight on seeing. Helen Keller put it this way, one of her most famous quotes, the only thing worse than being born blind is having sight but no vision. Helen Keller understood at the basic realities of the broken human condition, there are blindnesses more perilously blinding than physical blindness. And this is what the first century brilliant writer, the Gospel John, also understands. It is this truth that is woven brilliantly into this tapestry of a story of Jesus healing a blind man. And in the nearby literary shadows, I want us as we enter this story to hear a lurking provocative question. And that is the question John continues to raise. Who's really blind? And John's answer to this question may be surprising to you. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Now, John's story, this chapter, is arranged around three consecutive literary scenes or movements. In verses 1 through 12, a blind man sees. In verses 13 through 34, a seeing people are blind. And then in its crescendo in verses 35 through 41, Jesus gives true sight. Now, as chapter 9 opens, Jesus has just escaped from being stoned to death by religious leaders. Yet he stays in Jerusalem. Our text begins. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now, as we enter the first century context, they did not have a modern safety net, as we do today, and a blind person, the only way they could economically survive was to place themselves in a high-traffic area here in the temple and to beg. This is the context. But notice, from the very beginning of his story, John wants us to see that while everyone observed this blind beggar clearly every day, he is truly seen by Jesus. But what about Jesus' disciples? 
they are blind too. Jesus' disciples view this blind beggar as a theological case study. They want to know whether or not this man's blindness was causally due to some sin he had committed or his parents had committed. And Jesus' disciples are anything but compassionate here, right? In fact, their questions subtly cast, and maybe not so subtly, cast blame and shame on this man for his physical disability. And Jesus responds to this. Notice he describes it is a much more complex and mysterious reality than a simple either-or framework they are proposing. And Jesus makes the point here right away in the story that ultimately while God was not the cause of the blindness or suffering, God would be glorified through his suffering. In other words, God is big enough, great enough, sovereign enough to even accomplish that. And I think before we continue on in the story, I think we need to pause just a moment because Jesus' response here is really important for all of us in our context. We live in a broken world, right? And we do not fully understand all the dynamics of evil, of sin, suffering, and all its complexities and mysteries. Clearly we don't. And Jesus' teaching here helps us to see beyond some kind of simplistic, reductionistic causality. Even our suffering or other suffering that we love, their physical or mental or emotional or relational suffering, God can and will use to conform us as his followers to greater Christ-likeness. And ultimately, there's a hopefulness in the midst of the mystery to bring glory to himself. And let's not forget, if we walk in this blind beggar's sandals, perhaps the greatest suffering he ever endured, probably for a long time, is not just his physical blindness per se, right? That was hard. But rather, the agonizing isolation and shameful rejection he felt by his community. And this reminds us, quickly here in the story, that we need others to walk with us in our suffering. We need others to stay in the room with us. And we need to be there for others who are suffering. But John now continues his story, and he describes Jesus' miraculous healing. If you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus healed a lot of people. So what is really surprising here, and what stands out by John, is how Jesus healed this guy. The surprising way he healed him. So, the text says, it's actually repeated twice in the story, Jesus grabs some dirt, and he spits into the dirt, and he puts it on this guy's eyes, and then he tells him to go wash in a nearby pool. Now, it's true in the first century, it's true in our century, that, you know, spit's kind of gross. It's not a good thing. So what is John doing? There is no incidentalness of this. This is extremely important. Because if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, his exploration, you know that John often alludes to the Old Testament. Uh, it is constant, okay? Particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They are constantly woven just on the outskirts of the text. Let's remember, Jesus has just said in chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am, which is a direct connection to Exodus. By Jesus saying, I am, 
he is boldly claiming his eternal deity, right? So no wonder these people think it's blasphemous and they pick up stones. But now here we're in chapter 9. And John's same, he's up to the same kind of thing here. He wants us to know and to see Jesus as the divine creator. So in our text, right hovering over it in the background is Genesis 2-7. In Genesis 2-7, we read that the creator God formed the humans, or the first human, from the dust of the ground. So the same one, John is saying, who fashioned the heavens, who fashioned the earth, who made the earth, gets down in the dirt. Jesus takes some mud, touches the guy's eyes, and John wants us to make this connection. And notice, this guy is amazing because he doesn't hesitate. Remember, gross, it's kind of gross, the spit thing, right? Even in that culture. Instead, this guy's simple and beautiful faith is on display. He does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. The blind man goes to this pool and he sees for the very first time in his life. And it's hard for us to imagine what must have been going through his heart and mind and the exhilaration, the skipping of his heart. Is, I mean, can you imagine? He'd never seen this. He'd never seen this at all. John once though he was blind from birth. I was chatting with someone recently in our congregation who just had cataract surgery. What are the miracles of modern medicine? And she was describing what it's now like for her to see the sky and the flowers in her yard. Things that she realized well, she really hadn't seen very well for several years. But imagine here, this guy never seen, has never seen anything. And he's healed to perfect 20-20 vision. Maybe even better, right? It's my hunch. But what exhilaration. And you would think in the story, right, his friends and acquaintances and neighbors would all give him high fives. No way. So the story continues. This once blind man, John zooms his literary lens into this. Now he faces his neighbors and acquaintances who question him. Right? Who actually interrogate him in a very negative way. And he has to defend himself. So John wants us to ask the question, so who really is blind here? <laughs> Clearly the guy's neighbors and friends are blind. But John moves on in the story. He wants us to see there are some very religious people who see but are blind. And this begins in verse 13. John zooms in now as the story continues on what may be best described as a hostile interrogation <laughs> by religious leaders. Look at me at verses 13 and seven, through 17. They brought to the Pharisees, that's the religious aristocracy, this, this group, the man who had been formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He, the blind man, said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I, I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they say again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, 
And he said, he is a prophet. These religious leaders are having a really hard time. Can you feel it? They're having a hard time refuting the miracle. So what do you do when you can't refute an argument, a truth claim, or a miracle? You try to discredit the miracle worker, right? This is standard. But their tactic is fascinating here. They turn their sights now on the healed man to try to get him to discredit Jesus. Do you see that? But what is really awesome is this once blind man outshines and outsmarts them all. He gives Jesus an amazing compliment, but they're getting nowhere with this guy. Uh, and, and so you just feel this. Now, now they move, right? They put their sights on this guy's parents in order to discredit the miracle. Look at verses 18 to 21. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this, or ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. It's called plausibility of denial. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Do you ever get a chuckle when you read God's word? <laughs> you know, John is chuckling. I'm convinced as an older writer on the island of Patmos, he's looking back, he was there, it was a story. He is laughing as he writes this. And you feel the humor here. When John pens these words, he's having a blast. It's almost as if John is saying to us, without really explicitly saying, can you believe these religious leaders? Who is really blind here? And what about this guy's parents, for goodness sakes? These are, parents are a piece of work, just like these religious leaders. But notice they're on the hot seat, and John places them there. They're on the hot seat. And they fear, rightly so, he explains it if you don't know the culture, right? That if they go against these leaders, they're kicked out of the synagogue. This is like a social death sentence in that culture. So we'll give them a little bit of break. But notice what they do. They pass the buck. Classic. He's of age. Ask him. When I read John's account here, again, you got to love this story. This is amazing. Of what happened, I think of a game that I played with my siblings when I was young. On a hot summer day, I had several siblings. We filled water balloons. You ever done that with, you know, balloons with water? You fill them up until they're just about ready to burst. And we got in a circle, right? And we played the water balloon game. And we would fill it up, right, the balloons, and we get in a circle, and we'd start throwing it to somebody else, right, one balloon at a time. And, you know, if you've ever played like that, the goal of, is not to have the balloon break in your hands or to drop it, right, because then you're out of the game. But you learn how to handle that water-filled balloon. And when you catch it, right, you catch it carefully. And as soon as you catch it, you hand it off to somebody else. And the more you do that, you know it's just a matter of time because that balloon is getting more and more fragile and getting more stressed. And someone, even though how they catch it, is going to go, right? This is exactly what John is doing from a literary standpoint. He's like, look at this. They just keep passing it down, 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 right? And they're hoping, these leaders, that these religious, that their nefarious strategy will not suddenly 
bursts before their eyes. They're hoping their true heart motives won't be exposed for everyone to see them. But they don't get this discrediting break they want from this guy's parents. So what do they do? They go back to the blind man that had been healed, right? And you have this riveting dialogue. You can read more in verses 24 through 34. Let me highlight a little bit of it. The humble insight of the once blind man is contrasted with the incredible prideful blindness of the religious leaders. So here our story continues, verse 24. So for the second time, notice how John is explicit here. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, now this is leading the witness, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And this guy answers, whether he is a sinner, as Jesus, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they say to this guy, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this blind guy, former guy, says to them, now watch what he says. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why? Do, 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 you, do you want to hear it again? Do, do you also want to become Jesus' disciples? <laughs> and they reviled him, which is a, we picture that today as like profanity spewing, right? saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the guy answers him, look at this, the formerly blind guy. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And these religious leaders answer him, you are born in utter sin. Eugene Peterson brilliantly says, you're just dirt. And you would teach us? And they cast him out. Now, is this once blind guy amazing? Or what? I mean, John paints him like an underdog Cinderella character in a movie. This guy has no cultural capital. He's the lowest low in society. Against all odds and opposition, he outshines everyone else in the story. As the story ends, he is the bell of the ball. He is wearing the shiny slipper of true faith for everyone to see. Well, this guy may have been physically blind. He's not intellectually blind. He is not spiritually blind at all. He gives him a theology 101 lesson. <laughs> what a delightful surprise. And John is just delighted in sharing this. Notice his gracious composure, this guy, and steely courage under fire is jaw-dropping. And let's not miss, you picked it up earlier. He throws this humorous, satirical jab at his invest interrogators. Would you have loved to have been on the fly, a fly on the wall here at this moment? Don't you love this guy? Hey, uh, you don't also want to become his disciple, do you? <laughs> the gospel writer John loves this guy. He knew this guy. I have my imagination goes all over how he spent time with him. But he loves this guy. He's the un 
likely hero of faith. But this is precisely, if you remember, what John does in this whole book. You remember John gives us his purpose in John 20. And everything is carefully arranged, every story, for this purpose, that we may believe Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we will trust him and have life in his name. This is being lived out once again in this story. And can you believe the contrast? (laughs) The ugly pridefulness, the blindness of these religious leaders, they're hitting brick wall after brick wall. They feel more exposed. They're more frustrated. They're getting more angry. They can't refute this guy's intelligence, his intellectual prowess, his spiritual and theological insight. So what's left? All that's left for them to do is to engage in nasty, shameful name-calling. And let me just say, this is not only a strategy of the first century, it is ubiquitously prominent in our time. Where civil discourse around difference degenerates to name-calling and ad hominem arguments. When you cannot refute someone's moral arguments or their true claims, we all too often attack and seek to discredit, discredit their motives and character. And culturally, we also shame them, and that is what these religious leaders are really doing to this once blind man. They kick him out of the synagogue. So who is really blind? This is the question John wants us to ponder. And John's story here is very instructive for us across the sands of time. There is a perilous blindness that John presents to us that these religious leaders exhibit that we must not miss in our own lives and in our own times. What is that blindness? It is the blindness of certainty. Few are more blind, John reminds us, than those who are most certain. These religious leaders are absolutely certain that they have a good beat on things, but they are perilously blind. There is so much they do not see, and there is so much we do not see. Have you been reminded of that? recently in all these amazing pictures of the new Webb telescope that's an infrared telescope, which the infrared, you know, on the spectrum of energy, you can't even see that, right? And for many, many, many centuries, people, oh, outer space is just nothing. And we're seeing again more and more of the vastness of outer space, right? And the brilliance of galaxies and just mind-blowing. And it blows our mind in terms of that. The Wall Street Journal had an article this week and describes this moment for the world as an eye-opening moment. Here's what the writers say. With seven times more light-gathering power than the Hubble telescope, its predecessor, the Webb telescope is opening our eyes to the cosmos as never before possible and will give us new information about faraway worlds and the formation of galaxies and the furthest reaches of space. Is that awesome? And when you look at some of these pictures, I've looked at the different galaxies, it's like the sense of wonder of God is overwhelming. But I'm also reminded that all of us see the world through a finite vantage point. And there is so much we simply do not see, so much we do not comprehend. And this calls all of us to a greater sense of epistemic humility. That is, humility of mind and humility of heart that are so important for all of us to embrace. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul shatters the myth of certainty, and he does it in writing a letter, perhaps the greatest poem on love, to the letter to the Corinthians. And Paul says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Absolutely, that's true. 
but then face to face. That is, one day with Jesus in the new heavens where we will see fully. But at present, within the confining limits of your finitude and mine and my fallenness, we all look through a mirror dimly. We all have blind spots that can come in many, many forms. But let me suggest to take this story to our context. Two blindnesses that I think are very prevalent in our time. Cultural and generational. First, cultural blind spots. One of our contemporary cultural blindnesses that so malforms and distorts us in our Christian faith is actually human freedom. Now, do not miss it. John chapter 8, right before this, Jesus gives his greatest teaching on freedom, what true freedom is and how it's found and experienced in him, in submission and obedience to him and his word. We must not miss, and in the context of Jesus speaking of freedom, he brings his perhaps most concentrated teaching on satanic deception. So what's going on here? One of Satan's greatest deceptions is around freedom itself. That freedom is somehow throwing off social, moral, or religious restraint. That is defined today as being able to do anything we want, when we want, with whoever we want. But God's word tells a different story about human freedom. It is only found in abiding with Jesus and his word. And our freedom is not about doing anything we want, but loving as we ought. Freedom is a good thing, of course. But when it becomes ultimate, like all idols, it becomes idolatry. Our personal freedom is always limited by its alignment with God's design, his moral boundaries, and it's always guided by our love for God and neighbor. In our cultural context, individual autonomy and personal choice have become the highest value to which all other rights and interests must bow. This is idolatry of choice, and it's being played out before our eyes right now in a debate on billboards, on signs regarding the sanctity of the unborn. Do we see our blindness in this idolatry of choice? That so willfully and callously ignores God's clear moral boundaries in Scripture. But we also have other, genera- other blindnesses. One's a generational, not just cultural. Every generation with it has contemporary insight, but also historical ignorance. It's the nature of generational segmentation. Each one of us is profoundly shaped by our generational context and experience. It's very true. Every generation looks through a mirror dimly, There are not only generational sins, but Scripture reminds us there are generational distortions. And each generation corrects, and yes, sometimes overcorrects the previous generation. This is why one of the reasons why God designed the family and the local church to be multi-generational. It's so important that generations learn and unlearn with each other with teachability and humility. Now, I'm a member of the boomer generation. I'm a late boomer, okay? (laughs) Maybe a late, yeah, anyway. Uh, I continue to learn so much from younger generations that I work with. Some of the younger generations are some of my best teachers. Let me give you one example of my generational blind spot for me. And it comes regarding the depths of racial injustice in our nation. And I'm learning from a younger generation that I believe has some insight that I may have missed. 
particularly in the matter of racial reconciliation. The point is simply this. Every generation needs to glean wisdom of the generation before it and the generation that comes after it. And we must guard against overcorrection. It has been wisely said, I think this is so wise, that the one lesson we learn from history is what? We don't learn from history. Whether it's cultural, generational, or religious, few are more blind than those who are most certain. Will we remain teachable? Will we stay curious? Will we embrace a humble confidence? Are we willing to learn, but also unlearn and relearn? Now, let me say this clearly because I do not want you to misunderstand this. Yes, we can know some things truly. We are to have bedrock convictions. But because we know them truly does not mean we can know them exhaustively. We look through the eyes of faith. The writer of Hebrews frames it this way. Faith is the certainty. No. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yes, there is much more that we do not see. But it is Jesus who sees. He is the light of the world that gives true sight. And this is where John goes in his story. This is how it ends. Jesus gives true sight to the blind. In riveting contrast, the religious leaders who cast out the healed man, Jesus finds him. Don't you love that? He seeks him out. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus knows that this once physically blind man has a greater blindness, a spiritual blindness that only Jesus can heal, a blindness that you and I have. And one of the ironies here is that only the blind man, do you, do you see what John said? Only the blind man really knows he's blind. <laughs> yes, physically, but also spiritually. And the gospel writer John paints such a beautiful picture of true conversion here, of gospel conversion as this man responds to Jesus. Notice verse 38. We read, he, once, the once blind man said, now notice the word, Lord. He recognized that Jesus is the God of the universe in flesh. The I am, the creator of the world. He recognizes who Jesus is that healed him. And then he says, I believe, and he worshiped him. That is the picture of conversion, profoundly. So who is really blind? John ends the story dripping with the threads of irony. The blind man is the only one who really knows he's blind. <laughs> the seeing religious leaders are blind. In fact, they'll raise the question, are we blind at the end of the story? They see, but they are perilously, willfully blind. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the only one who truly sees in the story. The only hope for our generational, cultural, spiritual blindness is the good news of the gospel. Because the gospel not only changes hearts, it opens our eyes. I mean, again, this is important. Our heart's important, but the gospel profoundly ushers us into a worldview that touches every facet of human life, including ethics. C.S. Lewis described conversion this way. He said, I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen, not because I see it, but by seeing it, I see everything else. The gospel doesn't just change our hearts, it opens our eyes to an entire coherent worldview, a way of seeing and living in the world. The Apostle Paul was a poster boy for 
blinding, dogmatic, religious certainty. There was no one in the first century more certain and zealous than Paul. He killed and imprisoned Christians, for goodness sakes, until that dusty road to Damascus that one day. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, literally knocks him off his horse. How does Paul describe his conversion, his gospel conversion? Does he describe his change of heart? Well, certainly he had that. He talks about his eyes. In fact, he describes, or the book of Acts describes, scale-like things that fall off his eyes. His heart was changed, but his eyes were miraculously opened. And when he speaks before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 18, I encourage you this week to look here, he describes a gospel-centric focus given to him by the resurrected Jesus, and this is what he says, to open their eyes, notice that, so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus. Now, that's a pretty great summary of the gospel. The gospel not only changes our hearts, it opens our eyes. And only Jesus can give us true sight. Do we, like the blind man in our story, recognize our blindness? Or are we like the religious leaders while seeing we do not really see? Helen Keller was right. There is a reality more perilous than being born blind. It is having physical eyesight, but lacking spiritual vision. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled and grateful that Jesus reached out and truly saw a blind man who everybody else ignored. Father, that we are deeply seen by you and loved by you. And you reach out to us that we may find your amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.